Accelerating to a better future, an insight into innovation at Imperial. Welcome to this edition of Accelerating to a Better Future, celebrating the work of the Accelerator Programme at Imperial College London. I'm Amanda Carpenter and my co-host Richard Templer, founder of the Accelerator Programme all those years ago, is here too. Richard, it's great to be back in the studio for another podcast, isn't it? Yeah, lovely. I'm looking forward to it. Um, I don't know about you, but sometimes I get a bit down. Um, I have to say even slightly depressed about the state of the planet and the impending climate crisis. So it's a real joy to be having these conversations with so many of the entrepreneurs from the programme because they're coming up with real life practical solutions to the problems that we face. I mean, man-made solutions to man-made problems, I guess. Um, and today's is no exception. No. Um, in fact, when... when um when I started in this field, which I, I realised now is 13 years ago, which is an unlucky number, isn't it, if I was superstitious, um, the thing that really mobilised me was the natural world. Um, and it was because it was being ignored, uh, essentially. It's a, it's a huge producer of emissions. There's quite a lot of argument, actually, about how much it might be emitting, but it, it, it gets as high as about 40% of, 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 um, of the emissions, the planetary emissions that we every year i think down to something maybe half that size but our, our, our guests will no doubt correct me because they're real experts and anyway, i got involved with the area um, at that point both because it was a big emitter but also because it was very vulnerable to climate change um, so it's the first thing that i did so i'm delighted that today we've got i mean genuine experts um, doing things in the area of, of, of agriculture and rewriting the way that we do that for a, a, a planet that's under a lot of climate stress um, and, and doing something about it. So I'm delighted. Yes. And we're really looking at, um, at food, you know, we've entitled this podcast food that doesn't cost the earth um, and really looking at the different ways of and approaches to, to, to food production and agriculture. And we're joined by three of your graduates. Am I allowed to call them that? I guess I am. Yeah. Um, uh, William Pelton and Nick Kroll from Phytoform Labs. Welcome. Thank you. Thank you for having us. Um, and Sean Peters from DryGrow. Sean, hello. Hi, Amanda. Thanks so much for having me. So guys, it's great to have you on the programme. And I think that we probably need to just explore a little bit about what it is that you do. So Will, perhaps you could kick off. I mean, Tell us what Phytoform Labs do. I have to say, I looked at your website and I apologise to say I'm not much the wiser having read it. So <laughs> you're going to have to guide us through, including those of us who are very ignorant in these areas. Yeah, well, uh, yeah, we kind of kept our uh, website sort of a little bit mysterious just to sort of conjure up that interest from uh, future investors. Um, oh, so it was deliberately obfuscating and, and, and confusing me. Yeah, yeah, we kind of going through a bizarre sort of semi-stealth period. So um, we kind of want people to know a little bit, but not too much, um, which has meant it's just quite ambiguous, which uh, isn't always helpful. Um, yeah, so Fight to Form, kind of the basis for it is that our mission is to uh, improve the sustainability of agriculture uh, and also the nutrition of agriculture. Uh, I mean, the sustainability, I think Richard's already kind of underlined there there are different figures for, for from different institutions but i mean in the uk alone it's i think 12 to 14 percent of emissions are directly linked to agriculture and the uk is not like the biggest agricultural country in the world so it's a pretty frightening frighteningly large amount 
Uh, and then nutrition, something people know a little bit less about. But um, during the Green Revolution, we obviously went for big yields to feed our burgeoning population. And kind of maybe indirectly as a result of that, we kind of forgot about all those little nutrients that plants produce, which is so important to human growth uh, and development. Um, so we want to help try and restore that. So that's kind of our mission. So have we bred out some of those nutrients from from seed production? I mean, how, wh- where have they gone if they're not if they're not in the food chain alone? No, no, they've they've basically been bred out uh, as a response to just increasing the amount of calories, um, which you know is not necessarily where we need to be now um, for most of the planet. Okay, so what is it that you actually do? Sorry, stupid question, but... <laughs> good question. Um, so we figured the best way to tackle these two issues are with the actual crops themselves. Um, we think crops are an immensely powerful resource that humans have. Uh, they were quite happy on their own before any uh, animals crawled out the sea uh, for a long, long, long time. So they're very resilient. Uh, and they also provide the vast majority of all of humans humanities, calories, nutrients. Um, So during our experience with uh, the Climate Kick Accelerator, um, we learned uh, about many of the issues surrounding uh, crops. And so we were looking for ways to improve it based on new technologies. So we bring together uh, two two component technologies uh, to build out our platform. These two technologies are uh, a genome editing implementation technology so that's how we introduce traits. And on the other end of that, the opposite side, we have a trait introduction technology. So that's like discovering new, uh, I guess, characteristics that could help uh, plants either improve their nutritional content or uh, improve uh, the sustainability of that plant in that uh, industry. Does that mean you're basically making Frankenstein potatoes or you know is this gmo stuff which which you know has had a very poor reception in the uk at least or is it something different because i did i didn't think i was i was helping to make franken potatoes (laughs) that's a that's a good point richard um definitely no franken potatoes yeah franken franken spuds (laughs) <laughs> so Nick, what are they if they're not? I mean, it does sound yeah. like to the uninitiated, it does sound like genetic engineering, this genetic modification, which as as Richard said, is deeply unpopular and also possibly not fantastically sustainable because you can't you can't collect the seed and re-sow the seeds of a genetically modified crop, can you? So or, or perhaps I've got that wrong. Yeah, well, we're definitely trying to move away from the GMO label because that's not what our products are. And the sort of the GMO technology has been around for a long time. And, uh, you know, there has been really some crazy examples of, you know, fish genes in strawberries and so on. And this is definitely not something what we're doing. And what we really do is we basically uh, tap into the plant's natural diversity and plant's natural ability to have, um, to have all these sort of traits, climate tolerance, disease resistance, all sorts of uh, nutritional qualities they are already there they just need to be discovered so uh so we basically just speed up evolution and the way we do that is uh by by using technology rather than by using conventional breeding which takes a long time so it's it's not very different to what humanity has been doing for ten thousand years just speeding it up with uh with the help of 
newer biotechnologies as well as computational power and, and AI. You might want to explain what AI is. It's is really just a use of artificial intelligence for uh, for analyzing, for analysis of uh, vast amounts of data that really you and I can't really comprehend by just by looking at it. So, so it's, use it's, smart it's, algorithms for that. Nick, does that mean that you've basically got a, a, a computer program that has artificial intelligence look at the genetics of a particular crop and look for traits that, that look like they may be beneficial for what you're trying to do? That's exactly right. And, and, not, and not, only that, not only that, it also suggests new ones. So because it sees so many that we present to it, it can already make predictions that we, that we couldn't have shown it before. So it can really create new traits, which we believe will be crucial for future if we are meant to um, you know, mitigate uh, climate, climate effects on, on crops. So you're not actually, you're not adding anything to the to the seeds or the crops. You're actually finding what's there already and enhancing it and exacerbating it. Is that right? So you're taking something yeah. that's there naturally, but we wouldn't have been able to see it with the naked eye or even with standard, normal, more more traditional um, biological, you know, um, instruments or explorations. So we just you're taking something and making it bigger and better and more effective. Yeah, exactly, exactly that. Yeah. And is that for all seeds? I mean, is that for everything? Or have you spoke, focused on some particular types of crops? I mean, is it for grains or is it for something very specific? So uh, potatoes already came up. <laughs> so we, yeah, well, we, Will's we, got a thing about potatoes, hasn't he? I think, well, is that yeah, right? Yeah, he does. Uh, Will, do you want to do... <laughs> did your whole PhD on potatoes? I didn't even know that was possible. Uh, neither did I until I did it. Um, <laughs> no question either. It was very interesting, surprisingly. So, <laughs> surprisingly interesting plant um and to be honest after my phd i was like i'm probably done with potatoes uh and then they came up again and i thought well you know i've done it once why can't we uh, have another go so yes potatoes have ended up in our our repertoire of crops that we're looking at at the moment but um uh, one of the questions that's framed the development of our platform has been around how we can make this technology uh, as broad as possible. So how can we use it across many different crop species? Because that's kind of quite a limiting factor at the moment. Uh, you know, if you conventionally breed a crop, you generally stick with like a few because it's usually so expensive uh, and the logistics of it are so tricky that you just sort of concentrate on a few. Uh, and even with GMO technologies, there's lots of problems around how you get those technologies to work for specific crops. Um, so that's kind of our focus has been how do we make the biggest impact in terms of um, on the sustainability of the industry? And we think that's by focusing on a really broad tool that can be used across a really wide range of species. I love sure, that. to you because uh, I'm getting hungry here for French fries. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Enough talk of potatoes because, because Trigo, you're looking at a really um, significant crop, but but it's not necessarily for human consumption, is it? That's correct. You know, we're, we're looking at a crop called lemna or duckweed which is uh, the world's smallest flowering crop. Very, very tiny floating macrophyte that sort of looks like, kind of like tiny lily pads. Oh, and what do you do with it? Yeah, so we, I think to answer that question, I should probably take a step back as to like why we started focusing on this crop to begin with. And that really started um, when we were, we were doing some R&D at Oxford University here in the UK. And we were looking at um, one of the biggest challenges that the world is facing over the next generation. That is like, how do we produce enough food for you know, the world of 2050? 
and that's always the arbitrary one, but two extra billion people, that's the one that the UN always focuses on. So let's start there. And if you start to slice that problem up, um, you start to look at the crops that are going to increase the most in land use and in production. And we were surprised, I mean, this is all obvious information to anybody who's been digging into this, but we were surprised to find that over the next few decades, the crop that is going to, actually, does anybody know what the crop is? The crop that's going to increase the most in the next few decades? If you had to guess, it's not potatoes, I'll give you that. It'll be soya. That is it. That's correct. Um, and that's not because of soy sauce or tofu, although both are delicious. And it's actually because soy is the world's number one animal feed protein. And when you add 2 billion people to the planet, those people are eating on par or more meat in most places in the world. So you have the compounding effect of the current population staying on par in their meat consumption or in poorer countries as those countries urbanize more, have slightly higher GDP per capita. The trend is usually upwards in meat consumption. And then all of the new people being added, generally in those same places. Um, and so that puts massive pressure on our food systems. So if we look at all other crops globally, soy is the one that is set to increase the most. And the size of that increase is pretty significant. It's about, by 2030, about 17 million hectares, more than any other crop globally. And part of the challenge with that is that soy really is primarily produced in three countries, the US, Brazil, and Argentina. And most expansion in the past 20 years has come through Brazil. And sadly, the expansion over the next 20 years is expected in the same place. And that is, of course, related to a history of deforestation and that sort of thing. So that's that's the problem that we sort of started with. Okay, but surely there's a counter argument to that that says we, we're being encouraged to eat more plant-based diets and reduce of food consumption in terms of meat and and animals generally. So, so wouldn't you see the general tide be against people trying to reduce their consumption of meat and therefore hopefully drive down the need for soy? Definitely. And you know, that's I think in places like the UK and the US, that this is one of the places that we started is like what other public policy or other uh, levers do we have to try and affect this global demand? And you know, places like the UK or the US, those pushes are quite effective. And in fact, we also see things like alternative meats coming to play in those markets as well. But even under the most optimistic scenarios, those that the expansion of uh, those arguments or those alternatives is pretty minimal when you look at a global perspective. Uh, most of the demand, especially the increase in demand, is coming from emerging markets, where it's much more difficult to say to someone who's currently eating much less meat than someone in the UK, to actually decrease their their intake more because you know it's affecting global demand, um, that is a much more challenging uh, argument to make. Uh, and if we look at in the numbers, I mean the places where people are decreasing meat consumption are roughly one billion people. Places where people are increasing meat consumption is literally the rest of the world. And so that's the challenge. It's just a numbers. It's an aggregate challenge. Um, and so so we began looking at this challenge and thinking, okay, well. Eventually, global population starts to level off around 2060. Also, as some of these alternative technologies start to become more prolific in the market, maybe meat consumption starts to curve off as well. So we have a sort of 30-year challenge to figure out how to curb, put in place alternatives, um, uh, curb soy consumption. Uh, and so we began to explore alternative protein ingredients that could act as an alternative to soy in these animal feed markets. 
but do so in a way that was much more environmentally sustainable. And that's how we stumbled upon duckweed. I, I, I can remember when Charlie Curtis and Tim Kruger, who were the, yeah, my the, co-founders. Science, the science jocks doing the stuff at Oxford, um, came to chat to us about it. And um, the thing that, 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 that grabbed my attention immediately was, was the difference in the amount of water that you were going to use for this. And I think that that's one of the, I can remember, although I'm a scientist, kind of vaguely falling off my chair to hear how big the amount of, if you like, excess water that normal systems were using. So go on, tell, tell, tell the listeners what yeah. the difference is between normal ag and your version of agriculture. Tell us how, how, how you do that, how you reduce the amount of water you use. For sure, yeah. So, so we use 99% less water uh, than traditional production. Um, so we can produce you know, a pound of protein using 99% less water than a pound of soy protein. Um, and 99% less. That's correct. And Even also, though you're growing something called duckweed, which is presumably a water-based thing. Correct. <laughs> Plant. <laughs> and actually we grow on, you know, sort of large uh, production units. Um, they're about half a hectare each, quite, quite big. And um, they have raceways inside. So we actually grow on top of water. But the way that we're water efficient is by enclosing these environments. Uh, we actually have learned a lot from um, the kind of techniques that are being used in vertical farming. But instead of using expensive technology, like LDDs and these kinds of things and building you know, really expensive concrete infrastructure vertically, we work in you know, places that have dry land. We tip that vertical farm over, we use sunlight, we try to find ways to decrease the costs. And we try to produce a crop that happens to be one of the fastest growing crops in the world. Um, because we're enclosed, we recycle the water involved. Uh, we don't require the kind of rainwater that millions of hectares of soy require. Um, and we actually produce faster than soy. Um, so we have uh, higher output per hectare of production, about eight times faster today, but we think we can get significantly more than that. The, uh, the R&D here is still pretty early. And where are you doing that, Sean? Because you're not doing you're doing that all over the world, aren't you? Not just doing it in the UK. That's correct. Yeah. So we we started at Oxford, and then we spent another um, year and a half working out of Rothamsted, which is an egg research institute here in the UK. But then we wanted to demonstrate that we could do this in places that you know had a lot of sunlight that you know potentially could be used later for industrial scale expansion. Um, so we built our first sort of test facility in Kenya. Uh, Kenya is a place that has a lot of sun. It's not too hot. It's not too cold, but it also is kind of a microcosm of this larger soy market problem. The, the soy that goes to Kenya often comes from the Ukraine or India. Um, it travels a very long distance. It's very expensive and it, it tends to be quite low quality because of the lack of oversight on each node within that value chain. So stuff that gets to the end user is you know, not great. And from a global perspective, some of the most expensive product in the world. So we thought if we can produce locally, you know, using a system that's much more water efficient than local egg production, um, also much more land efficient because it's very quick, fast growing, and produce a product that then could be used locally, we're shrinking the value chain. We're providing a better product, at potentially a better price, which has environmental benefits, economic benefits, and as a result of that, social benefits. So we thought that's a good place to start. Um, but over time, we're hoping to, to move beyond Kenya. So you presumably also got quite a small carbon footprint because you're not transporting your, your food crop 
thousands of miles, as you've said, from you know one part of the world to another? Yeah, I mean, we, we think so. This is a highly location-specific question. So as we begin to uh, look at what industrial scale expansion would look like in Kenya and within other countries, we want to conduct a full LCA comparing our production method versus however they get local supply in those different countries. So that is forthcoming. We're looking at maybe a 2021, 2022 release for that, but that's a project we're, uh, we're planning for right now. Sean, you mentioned the LCA acronym for the yes. first time in our, in our podcasts. So it now comes to you to explain to our audience, what is an LCA? Right. So it's, it's very easy to, for, uh, for many startups to say, I have a positive environmental impact. And perhaps on one metric, they might have an easy way to measure that. But the bigger picture is always more complicated. And so that's where a, a technique called an LCA comes into play. LCA is life cycle analysis and looks at everything from where you get your water, what materials you use, where they're sourced from, how far they travel, what kind of impact carbon impact is involved in producing those materials, um, what kind of uh, proxies would be used if you didn't exist, all of these kinds of things. And so that's sort of the gold standard. It's not perfect. And there are different methodological questions around you know, one measurement versus another, but it's, it's sort of the, the the more respected way to talk about environmental impact. Yeah, it's just, uh, I, I thank you very much for that, Sean. It's just to, so that our listeners know when people start to say LCA, um, what they mean is, is they're using a kosher approach to trying to calculate the amount of greenhouse gas emissions they produce, not just from what they do, but from all the value chain that they, that they, they're plugged into. So, if they buy fertilizer from somewhere, that, that fertilizer has got a footprint, and they add it all up together. And in fact, there's there's there's, there's other things which I hope we're going to we will get to maybe even in, in in this chat, which are about sustainable development goals. But maybe we'll just put that to one side because we're getting quite techy now, and that's a danger because we're all <laughs> we're all geeks here. <laughs> Speak for yourself, Richard. Um, oh, sorry, I, <laughs> I just wanted to ask actually Will and Nick a question because it seems that but by both of these examples we've had and both your businesses are quite different, but they're, they're, they're working to the same end, which is obviously to make agriculture more sustainable and to increase the ability to, to produce food, whether it's for animals or for humans. I mean, from, from your perspective, you two, do you see, do you see your, your business growing exponentially across the globe or is it something that's always going to be centered in the UK and it's about applying that technology and then just saying okay here's here's the seed you can have it how will it work because I can see the model that Sean's got so he's going to be setting up these amazing low water low energy plants everywhere you need to feed animals but how will you, how will yours grow and develop in that in in a similar way yeah so our plan is that we want to keep the UK our base for definitely the near future and certainly uh, further afield than that uh, and our kind of model uh, it's more around techn te technology licensing. So uh, we kind of have two strategies at the moment. The first one is where we will develop individual traits or characteristics uh, in partnership with uh, usually something like a seed reader. Um, so the example at the moment is we're working with a man in Florida, a tomato breeder. He's got credible tomatoes, so you know, and they go nicely with uh, potatoes, ketchup and fries. Um, and... He is just missing one characteristic that he really, really needs to be able to like shift that 
to a, a larger scale uh, grower. And that trait also massively reduces waste during harvest and transportation. So we were like, that, that's a really cool project to work on. Um, and so with that, uh, we would develop the trait ourselves uh, and then commercialize it in partnership with uh, our tomato breeder um, and own the IP jointly, and split the revenues. Um, the other model we're looking at further afield is where we start to uh, develop our own crops. Uh, so one of the questions, I think it's quite a classic question in plant science, is uh, if you went back 10,000 years with everything you know now, would you pick the same crops uh, that we have? I know Sean's obviously thought about this, and, got, and lemon is a, a great uh, alternative. Uh, and so we've also had to think about it, and we think we might have some uh, crops that aren't as well-developed as soy and wheat and, and maize, but uh, actually could have a much bigger impact uh, and are much more suitable as well. And that would be that would be our own crop. So then we would uh, commercialize that with partners uh, further up the supply chain. So, uh, you know, processors and, and people like that. But Nick, am I right in thinking that once you've you've built the um, the ingredients of the, the seed, I mean, once the seed or the plant has got these new traits, can it then reproduce naturally itself or does it have to keep coming back to you? I mean, once you've got it, can you, will next year's seed be the same and will it carry on? Yeah, it, in, in short, yes, it will just keep, keep being there every every year. But it, but it actually does depend on the, on the product itself. So, for example, as we were speaking about uh, tomatoes, uh, uh, breeders actually for decades have been using something what's called hybrid vigor and and hybrid technology so yeah the traits that you have in the tomatoes they'll be there every year but you actually do need to buy the seeds from the breeder because if you try to keep them and and self sort of propagate them you will lose a lot of the a lot of the good qualities just because of the way how how it's been bred and uh, and for potatoes it's also another interesting uh, situation that actually most of the potatoes grown in UK and the US are, are really clones. So they are propagated from tubers and, and uh, there is, there is, has not been much breeding done actually in the, in the, there's more and more, but, uh, but obviously the sort of varieties that are uh, controlling the market share are, are sometimes even hundred years old. So uh, so it really depends uh, based crop on crop. And yeah, our technology is not going to just disappear from generation to generation. But the way how farmers actually in like modern commercial agricultural operations accept those varieties like year on year actually really depends on crop, uh, crop to crop. Yeah, because I can see that would be a great model for you because people would have to keep coming back and that's fantastic business and, and you know, exactly what, what Richard wants to do with the accelerator program. But I worry about the impact that might have on perhaps the developing world or the global south where, you, where you're then in the thrall of the, of the seed manufacturer or the, or the supplier of the original plant and you can't cultivate, cultivate your own and have next generation and next generation. Surely, is there a problem there or am I just imagining something? I mean, that, that's kind of an ongoing problem in agriculture. But I think, obviously, we want to make sure seeds are as accessible as possible. But then, obviously, if you want better seed, then you kind of have to accept that the people who develop the better traits and characteristics will obviously have to, you know, be able to get some some value out of it for themselves. Um, so I think it's a real balance of, I mean, obviously, as the classic Monsanto model where you... You know, you aggressively attack uh, anybody who's 
accent my, my last sentence, I'm not sure. Um, yeah, aggressively attack anybody who uh, accidentally accepts that trait um, just through conventional breeding, you know, maybe your fields next to a, a Monsanto one. Um, but equally, if you want to have completely free seed, then obviously it's kind of up to you more. Uh, and there are loads of great cooperatives that help uh, develop that seed. And so I think we lie somewhere in the middle, right? We, we want to help uh, people get access to better seed, but at the same time, we also need to function as a company. So I need to capture some value. And as you said, it's about partnership, isn't it? With the breeders and things. So it's developing that right partnership across the world. That's Monsanto's funding gone for the next round of the kick, I'm afraid. <laughs> that's, that's fine. Yeah, I wonder whether I could ask you a question, which, which was something that um, we used when we were considering your applications when you originally joined the Climate Kick, which was we were interested in agriculture, looking at business ideas, innovations, that both reduced uh, greenhouse gas emissions from agriculture, but which also could adapt to some of the um, some of the things that we knew the the the, the weather extremes that we knew would happen um, with climate change. And I as I hope I'm, I hope I, my recollection is correct. Both of you have aspects of of what's called mitigation and adaptation. So mitigation for emissions and adaptation to climate so maybe sean could you tell us what 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 your approach does in terms of both of those things yeah absolutely um so on the on the mitigation side um if we look at global deforestation um you know brazil is one of the countries that has been the major culprit of global deforestation and um much of that although it's debatable has been driven by soy expansion into rainforested land. Um, this is a complicated question because there's also transition to pasture lands for, uh, for cattle um, that also contributes here. However, often there is a cycle where land is converted to pasture land and then converted to soy farming on a sort of a forest to pasture land to soy farming cycle. Um, whether one drives the other is a question that lobby groups and industry has been debating and arguing for, for quite some time. But we know that there's a relationship there. And we know that as deforestation has happened, soil land has expanded, and there's at least some pressure relationship there. Um, if there was an alternative to soy production, soy expansion, um, that would go a long way to pushing companies to use that alternative. And if that alternative could be um, advantageous uh, in that it could produce in country of consumption or closer to country of consumption and tell a great climate change mitigation story. I think many of these companies would be interested in that, especially since they have been hit with, many of them have been hit with fines again and again for ignoring the kind of soy uh, prohibitions that have been put in place by um, regions like the EU. So I think that that's, you know, from the response that we've been getting from industry is that that's really compelling if that alternative could be demonstrated to actually produce at the kind of volumes that they need. And those volumes are massive. So our efforts have been to try and focus on getting to a point where we can actually produce at those volumes much more sustainably than the alternative. Um, so that's on, on mitigation. On adaptation, I mean, it's, it's clear that what got us through the last century in terms of energy systems, of course, but also food production systems clearly won't get us to the next. Uh, 
you know, we talk about, uh, you know, the next 10 years and soybean, the crop that's going to expand the most. What about the next 40 years? Um, if we look at, we play that scenario out right now, again, I said that there are three countries, the U.S., Brazil, Brazil and Argentina that produce most of the world's supply of soy. The U.S. isn't expected to expand anymore. By 2050, we need another Brazil and Argentina's worth of soy again. And that has already been a major driver of deforestation. We can't survive another push like that. Now, 2050 feels like a long way away. This year, of course, has felt like 50 years in itself. <laughs> so, I, I mean, that feels like way out, but it really isn't. Um, we need to start thinking about what that world looks like to, from, from the point we're at today and building towards those new systems. And frankly, I think, you know, if not us, well, us and, um, we need a whole suite of new protein ingredients for animal feed and for human consumption. And we need policymakers to push for better policy. And we need alternative needs. And even with all of that at the same time pushing, we'll maybe get there, maybe not. Um, so that's, that's part of a larger uh, adaptation uh, and mitigation strategy that I think we're a small note in, but uh, many others are involved in as well. I think the example just shows how complex agriculture is and how easy it is when you undertake agriculture to not quite, you know, I'm not blaming anybody, but how you can do things that seem like this is the obvious thing to do and they actually cause damage that you're just not aware of because you're doing things indirectly. I'm using this piece of land over here. I'm going to change my crop can mean somebody else somewhere else just opens up some forest in order to grow the crop that you stop growing in order to supply markets and so on and so forth. And, and all of that is a mixture of adaptation and mitigation. It, 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 it can be very, very complex um, thing to grapple with. I think that I think politicians find it difficult as well to grapple with. Anyway, maybe we should, we should ask Nick and, and, and Will, guys, what's the adaptation and what's the mitigation in your technology? So, so the mitigation that we're looking at now is really um, waste reduction. So we find a lot, a lot of uh, food waste is is not only at the consumer end that that we sort of uh, hear a lot in the news, but actually also on the sort of retailer end and and even earlier during the processing and sort of packaging of food and, and harvesting of food. So, so really the really the mitigation that we are targeting now is that uh, by, by basically targeting this sort of food waste within the supply chain, we'll be able to mitigate the inputs that need to go into growing those crops. And that way we can make it more sustainable and also less CO2 uh, heavy. Well, that's the, 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 the waste um, issue is, is one which I think really bugs everybody. But I don't think people are aware about how much waste there is at the production end of things. And I know that in the in the developing world, um, that can be up to 40% of, of, of land areas essentially producing food that never gets eaten or sold. And that, that doesn't just have a climate impact, that has an impact on, on people's livelihoods because they, they, they're simply not making money. And of course, they're working harder as well. Because they have to, yeah. they have to, they have to, they have to farm excess land in order just to make ends meet. Okay, Will, I guess you're going to do the, the adaptation bit. Um, so obviously, the, you know, with agriculture, there's, there's some really obvious adaptations that need to be introduced to, to crops that exist, like you know, drought tolerance, 
uh, even actually cold tolerance as well. Uh, bizarrely, in Europe, we've seen you know the more extreme extremes in the weather causing huge losses uh, from late frosts and things like that. Um, there was, I mean, there was that kind of meme about the uh, courgette shortage. Uh, do you remember a couple of years ago? <laughs> I can't say I do, Will. <laughs> Go on, tell us. Uh, well, there was a, a shortage of courgettes across the UK, which obviously was kind of hilarious, but actually underpinned billions of tons of waste from not just courgettes, obviously, but loads of other vegetables and fruits, um, and obviously as a symptom of climate change. So there's, there's things like that. Um, and then for us, I think, as we, as I said before, about looking to uh, develop crops that are actually better suited to our needs. Uh, we think that's like a really strong adaptation for, for resilience against climate change. Um, so, you know, we, one of the things we look at is soybean as well and how absolutely shocking it is. And to be honest, we think soybean is fundamentally a tropical crop. So, you know, its g genetics are just, the resources that are available are probably not as good um, as in other crops. Uh, I'm sure soybean scientists would argue against that, but that's kind of uh, our takeaway. Um, and yet there are some amazing crops. Uh, we've been looking at some of the bean, alternative bean crops um, that can grow on every single continent apart from Antarctica. And they grow in mountains, they grow in deserts, they, they grow all over the place. Uh, and we think particularly for human consumption, so we're looking more at the alternative meat, alternative dairy markets, that, that could be a huge winner. Um, to sort of wean us of soy. Uh, and then moving even further forward into the future, we, we love, you know, the new, uh, well, not new, but uh, the interest in regenerative farming and techniques like that. And we think our technology is really well suited to that, where you can start to develop sort of intercropping. Uh, so, you know, not a monoculture in a field, but actually multiple crops that depending on their architecture and when they're going to produce uh, the actual fruit or, or seeds, um, you can change so that you can actually easily, uh, you know, have many crops in a single field. So that's kind of, yeah, looking forward how we think we can help. It sounds very exciting, Will. It does sound exciting. And it's really, it, it's been fascinating, this discussion, because it's encapsulated so many of those issues around food and food production, not just the issue that you just mentioned, Richard, about waste, but also perhaps the very narrow approach we take to the things that we eat and how we could actually broaden out our, 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 our tastes and our palates and actually eat all sorts of things that would be easier to grow and have far less um, damaging impact on the climate. Um, have you, do you, can you see a huge pressing problem on the horizon uh, uh, in terms of climate that you don't think, you know, we as a, a world be able to um, address? Or do you have hope and faith, given that you're all scientists and you've all been exploring new um, solutions to, to intractable problems? Do you have a certain amount of faith and hope that we're actually going to crack this? I mean, can you cheer me up, really, is what I'm asking here. <laughs> I, I well, cheer me up. I'm very needy. Will technology save us all? I, I, I... To be honest, I think that, I, I don't know. I really don't. I, I think that eventually we'll be okay, but it may be a really rough period in the interim. I mean, we're on the cusp right now of two degrees rather than 1.5 being, you know, a bit of a stretch goal now. Um, and we see the political will and I'm Canadian. So my neighbors to the South, um, maybe shifting in one direction or another quite shortly depending on when this podcast is released. Um, and so I, I think it, it really depends on, on how the next 10 years goes, how fast we make advancements, how much political will there is. Um, 
you know, whether we take this seriously or not, I think this may be our, our kind of last chance right now. Will, I don't know if you have a more insight or perhaps more hopeful message. Uh, no, I, I think you're pretty much bang on there. Uh, yeah, I think obviously technology has made so many amazing strides over the last, well, since humanity began, basically. But I think, yeah, there does need to be more of a shift in, in how people view our planet, how they view sustainability. Uh, I mean, you know, if we invent fusion power tomorrow and, you know, our energy needs are solved, there are still other issues, you know, like the fact that we throw so much away, so much plastic waste, all, all these things, uh, including food waste. Um, so I don't think technology can save us alone. I think I agree with Sean. Um, there needs to be a political will and also will of the people to really change the way we live currently. I think that the, the way I would put it, Amanda, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm interrupting, but this, this is the stuff that gets me out of bed early in the morning to... to mess around trying to trying to help companies to to be created you, you you cannot do you cannot save yourself without this kind of technological input but ultimately the technology has got to be things that people actually can and want to use and can use in um carefully and sensibly i mean i'm beginning to sound like some some something like my grandmother i think um <laughs> I, I, turning into I, a sage, Richard, that's what it no, is. No, no, no. I, I, I think, you know, my, my, my grandparents' generation would have had a lot to teach us about not being wasteful and taking yeah. care of, 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 of things in a way that I think from the mid-50s onwards we sort of lost. Well, that's my – I was born in 58. That's when all this stuff really was was going on. The the, the thing that, that I think in the, in the natural, the biological world – um, that maybe you've sort of got an inkling of from this discussion, from this chat, is that nature is very interconnected and complicated. And that's the area, you know, that, that we, we're, we're smart, but we're not that smart. The way that the ecology works, the way that things are interconnected, we have repeatedly failed to understand and take care of. Um, so if, if I was, I'm, I'm not mean, meaning to make you feel miserable, but I think that that we, in, in the terms of, of the way we use the natural world, we must take pay attention not just to climate change, but also to species diversity and, and, and number. And, and, and if we don't do that, that will affect food supply. It will affect all sorts of things um, that we rely on. So it's our turn to actually take care of all the other critters on the planet because we've been negligent. Um, and I think that, that that for me is, is a story that I hope somebody else would come along with a wonderful set of solutions for. Well, perhaps that's for phase two of the Accelerator Innovation Programme. Well, you're absolutely right. <laughs> we need to take care of our planet and we're not, but we also need to be mindful of the other creatures upon it. So and that's a really... That's a good place to draw this discussion to a close, I think. Thank you so much to our guests, to, to Nick, Will and Sean, and for the extraordinary and exciting work that you're doing um, to improve the, the, the food supply chain in all its aspects. And, and Richard, I think that this is just yet another one of these extraordinary discussions from Imperial Podcasts, and we have many more to come. But um, 
we always dive so deep and we learn so much. So it's been such a pleasure and it's been great to have you all here. So thank you to our guests and uh, and thank you to our listeners. Tune in next time. Please make sure you download the app on your podcast um, app provider of choice or you can go to the Grantham Institute website. Um, thanks for listening and and goodbye to our guests and to our listeners. Bye-bye, guys. Goodbye. Thanks, Amanda. Thanks, Richard. Take care. Thanks, guys. Bye-bye. Accelerating to a Better Future is a Planet Pod production, co-hosted by Amanda Carpenter and Richard Templer. Our thanks to our producer, Jim Hayward, and the team at Imperial College London.